Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Terry Lynn Shropshire, ACE, on editing Netflix's The Old Guard. This is a show that many readers have been asking me about, and I'm so happy that Terry Lynn is here to discuss it. A film with a kick-ass female lead and a kick-ass editor. It was just my luck that I was moderating a panel Terry Lynn was on, and she graciously agreed to an interview. Terry Lynn's credits include another recent action flick with a strong female lead, Miss Bala. She was an additional editor on A Wrinkle in Time, which was a previous Art of the Cut interview. She edited the extraordinary documentary The Secret Life of Bees, which has been on my wish list for Art of the Cut interviews since when it came out, and a fantastic feature that she did that came out in 2000 called Love and Basketball, which we also discuss in this interview. Her TV credits include episode one of Ava DuVernay's When They See Us, among others. Our conversation started when she told me that she had finally watched The Old Guard at home, streaming on Netflix, just like the rest of us. What is the experience of watching it like that instead of the way you've been watching it, you know, critically, where you know you can do something, you can give notes? Now, you're done. Yeah. I mean, my first reaction was, I've got to get a better sound bar. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, it, it was one of those things where one of the last send-offs Gina and I did was to go over to Deluxe in Burbank, social distance, masked on, to watch it and listen to it on the big screen. And it was something that we both desperately needed, and, and it was extraordinary. We had gotten a taste of it during our final stages of the mix, where for the purposes of hearing the mix and doing fixes... We did go to a facility and a social distance and do that process. But for us to just sit in a theater and watch the movie was, was extraordinary, knowing that it would probably be a while before we were able to do that again. When it aired on Net, well, as it's streaming, airing, I don't even, projecting on Netflix, <laughs> um, it is something extraordinary to watch because the film does have such scope. And yet I feel that it, it still reflects that in, in, in watching it that way. I was able to kind of, you know, just enjoy it. I mean, aside from my sound issues, it, it was good. It was really good to uh, just kind of sit back and enjoy it and see how it translated, to be perfectly honest, from what I was used to hearing. How did you monitor audio in the edit suite? I monitored it left, center, right. I have not gone down the world yet of setting up everything in a 5-1 situation, but I found it to, to work really well for us. And certainly I think the assistants appreciated that I wasn't trying to keep 5-1 going during the entire process. Yeah, there's very few people that I'm talking to that try to do a 5-1. It's just so complicated and so much extra things to think about that uh, yeah, I think most people are doing LCR at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Did you have to do any of this editing from home? Well, we were imminently locked. We had a meeting with the crew on Friday the 13th. I remember it specifically because <laughs> we were starting to kind of hear and be aware of the rumblings of people heading home and closing down and drives being bought up. And so I really wanted to have a conversation with the crew about 
how they were feeling about everything. And by that following Wednesday, we were all pretty much in our own individual spaces. So Gene and I had done most of the heavy lifting, but uh, we still had notes coming in from producers and, and a few things to kind of wrap up. Because I felt like I was pretty much done, I didn't come home with like the full system. I came home with an iMac monitor and basically two drives. The challenging part for us was we hadn't scored yet. Gina and I were literally two weeks from heading to London to score with our composers. And that, of course, got postponed. We were still working on ADR, scheduling all, getting the actors um, together to do ADR. And you know how challenging that can become. Our post-supervisor, Ruth Hasty was still making calls and trying to coordinate where everybody was. And so that had to be dealt with. And we were still very deep into visual effects reviews. So all of those elements from ADR to mixing to scoring, all of that had to be done from our isolated quarantined spaces. And we had to figure out a way to make that happen and deliver the film at the caliber that we all intended it to be. That it was. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) It was a lot of heavy lifting for everybody. My assistants were amazing. Can we give a shout out to them? Who are Yes, they? it was uh, Corinne Vila was my first assistant. Angela Latimer was um, my second assistant. I had Sean Val as a VFX editor, Ethan Henry as a assistant vis- VFX editor. Our uh, music editor was Jen Monar. All these people were just amazing and really, really stepped up. And because they really were the people that had the bulk of the when I say that post-production delivery, turnover, having to make obviously countless quick times um, for everybody who needed them to get the film done. And it was interesting because when we all got to our separate homes, I think we realized how robust or not robust our internet was. And uh, I remember the first week, Corinne, who is the calmest person, she is just this powerhouse was so quietly stressed about the fact that, you know, her internet at home was not at any kind of capability for the amount of work she knew that she had to do. And so for that first week, as she's trying to get the, you know, whether it was Spectrum or or Time Warner, whoever was to come in and, 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 and kind of bump that up, a lot of the work was having to kind of go to Angela and Angela just handled it so well. I mean, I could not have hoped for a better crew getting through this during COVID. What do you do or how can you help those assistants to move up and and increase their skills? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is to find out what they want, is to get a sense of who they are and where do they want to get to? Because not every assistant wants to be an editor. They may have other goals. They may be perfectly happy pursuing their work as an assistant. Very early in my career, it was one of my first jobs, um, and I was working as a second assistant. And I remember that the production coordinator on the film, because the, the production office was actually right adjacent to the editing room, and when she would needed to talk to the, the post crew, you'd hear her yell, editors, editors, get in here, I need to talk to you. And I remember that because even though I was a second assistant and there was a first assistant and then there was the editor, she called us all editors. And I always think about that in terms of the mind space of the people that are coming in to work alongside me, to help me 
allow me to be my most creative self, right? And so I think that the first thing I try to do is to get a sense of who they are and what they want. And then through the course of that working relationship and and seeing how they're working within their responsibility, if I see that it's somebody who is working very hard and, and very passionate about the work and also what we're doing, I usually try to kind of put them in a space where they can either work with me, work with the director, be in a room at times when the two of us are working together, bring them in for feedback. Because I think part of preparing an assistant to get in the chair is not just the tools. You know, they're going to learn the software. They're going to learn how to do any number of things within their daily responsibilities. What they're not necessarily going to learn is how to communicate with the director, how to communicate with the producers, how to conduct yourself from a political standpoint, you know, when you have a lot of different entities coming in to either look at the film, evaluate the film, talk about anything. And so what's great about Gina, the director I worked with on The Old Guard, is she's someone who wants feedback from the other people that she's working around. So anytime we would finish a cut, she'd bring the entire crew in and sit them down and we would show them something. And then she would encourage everyone to share their opinions. And I would do the same even when Gina wasn't there. But I think what's interesting about it is, is that with assistance, sometimes there's a comfort level to being able to talk to me. And that's what they would see as a safe space and give me feedback. I notice sometimes there's a little more hesitation when they're actually in the room with the director. And I think that part of my responsibility is to communicate to them that they should feel free to supply constructive criticism and talk about how do you express yourself in that kind of space. So that's part of the things I do. Um, Like I said, often when I was working on a scene and Gina wanted to review dailies, she would go into Angela's room. We set up Angela's room to with a large monitor. So Angela often would be having to build out string outs of performances and that type of thing. And then she and Gina would uh, narrow it down to the things that Gina wanted me to then go take a look at. I tried as best I could to keep them involved in our process. And for them to be visible, too, that's a big part of it, correct? Exactly. For them to be visible, for Gina to know that if I'm not available, she could go to Corinne or she could go to Angela. If she needed to do something with visual effects, go down the hall. I mean, sometimes I'd push her down the hall. Deal with that with Sean, you know? (laughs) I got got other stuff to do here. And so she got very comfortable with working in that environment. And then as you start to look at what your assistants are doing and knowing what they're doing on the side. Are they cutting something on the side? Are they are they working on something else? A lot of times I will get calls from people looking for someone to cut a short or can you cut, I need someone to do something for me or someone's about to work on a documentary. And I really try to kind of keep my eye out and be aware of what both the assistants I'm working with now and the assistants I've worked with in the past where they are in their careers or what they're doing. And a lot of times I'd like to try to recommend them. But I am also very careful because I don't want to put anyone forward that I can't stand behind or support. And and often I say that too, because sometimes directors are looking for a certain resume. And often I'll say to them, look, you know, this person's got talent. They just don't have the opportunity yet. They haven't had enough opportunity. 
And if you decide that you want to go with somebody like that, I am their support system. I will be there. Wow, that's powerful. (laughs) To support them because, I mean, how else do you get those opportunities? And that's because what I had when I was growing up in this business is I had very, very supportive editors who gave me the opportunity to cut, gave me the opportunity to watch what they were doing. And so I think a lot of it has to do with how you grew up, right? And who are the people that raised you? And I had some really lovely people. Who were they? Well, I worked um, with uh, Howard Smith. I was his first assistant for a number of years. I worked with Paul Trejo, Earl Watson, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. Anne Gorsow was um, someone who I only worked with once as an additional assistant, but she remembered me. And when she transitioned from editing to starting to direct herself, she called me to edit her first three films. So these are the type of people that through their advocacy of me, I was able to work my way up the craft. And I, I'm really, really grateful. I, I, hopefully all of us are grateful to those that brought us up and you know had faith in us. I love that. Let's talk a little bit about the craft itself and this movie. What do you do when you got dailies? What have you asked your assistants to prep for you? And then you walk in, you grab your coffee or whatever. And yeah. What do you do? I have asked them to prep my dailies. And on something like The Old Guard, in certain scenes where you knew that you had multiple cameras going, I was very specific about um, I wanted group clips. And this is where I, I kind of trusted that they would have a familiarity with what the cameras were doing. A lot of times, in some cases, we had these kind of GoPro head cam- cameras that were we had to deal with or or something like in the kill floor where we had cameras everywhere. Just being able to kind of create those groups that I could sit and watch. So generally what I would do is I grab my coffee or my tea because I was in London and um, and I would just start literally from the beginning and I don't have a notepad at least directly in front of me. Um, Because the first time I watch dailies, I really don't like to take notes. I not to say that I never do it, but if I have the time not to, I prefer just to watch it and be that audience member, um, knowing very little. Obviously, I know the scene that's coming in, but beyond that, I just like to watch and go through the dailies. And sometimes there are days where I feel like I've spent four hours or something, just, you know, just watching dailies. But it it really does help me to get myself in the emotional space to cut the movie. And obviously I'm making sure that I see that everything I want to see or that I feel that should be there. And if I'm starting to get a certain degree of anxiety as I'm going through the dailies towards the end and I'm not seeing what I need to see, then that becomes a different kind of, now I'm searching. At a certain point, after you've seen so much of the scene from different angles, that you start to kind of put it together in your head, right? And then you start to make sure that there's a particular detail or reaction or that there's a certain line that you really want to see in a certain space and you hope that it's there. Um, So that's kind of my process. And it's hard these days, but I cannot not look at everything. I mean, it's just back in the day, day, day when we used to have circle takes. And sometimes I think about now when we didn't circle take everything and there was this thing called B-neg. And sometimes <laughs> I wonder now, just like the B-side of a record that maybe, you know, what was in that B-neg that we missed all those years ago, <laughs> but uh, that never got printed up. 
So we've got a very obviously advanced kind of listenership and people who know what a term like BNEG is. But for those who don't know what BNEG is, could you explain it? Yes. Well, when in the days of film, uh, when they were shooting multiple takes on a set, um, there was something called circle takes. So they might shoot four takes of something and the director will decide on the set, oh, I liked takes two and four, which meant that two and four were the ones that were printed up to film. And the other takes were left as a negative. They were not actually printed on the film itself. And you generally did not see those takes visually as an editor unless it was a decision that for whatever reason we needed to print up those takes. And those takes were called BNEG. Now in in our digital world, everything is uh, brought into the cutting room. Even though we will have circle takes, everything is what we call printed or transferred. You mentioned watching four hours of dailies. How much dailies were you getting in? I mean, I've heard of people getting 10, 12 hours of dailies. And then what do you do? Like, how how do you watch that? It's so crazy. And I'm trying to think of what, I don't have an exact number on a particular day, but there was a lot coming in. There were days, obviously, when first and second unit was shooting simultaneously. It's a lot to watch. It's a lot to watch. And so often my first watch would be first unit because ultimately that was where I felt if they needed feedback from me, I needed to kind of get to that as quickly as possible. I also had to kind of evaluate how long a any particular unit was going to be at a location. So if I knew, for instance, that first unit was going to be only at this location for a certain amount of time, and usually second unit was following right behind them, that was my focus. Um, sometimes second unit knew they were going to be in someplace for a couple of days, and I, I felt like, okay, well, I have maybe a little bit of time to, if I have something to say about it, that I could comment. But it really keeps you on your toes, because it's not just about the editing. I found myself being in a position where you're having to make sure and communicate with the director that you see everything that that you feel like should be there. And, um, and so I, it was one of those things where sometimes editing had to wait. I mean, editing just had to wait until I could go through everything and, and make sure that everything was there. One of the responsibilities, right, is to let the director know that you think you have everything. Yeah. And I think that that's the thing, especially when you're first starting out, because that confidence that you build from doing this as long as we've been doing it and being able to actually confidently make that call. It's a great call when you call and say, oh my God, you did a great day in that scene and that performance. And But the call you dread is when you have to, 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 to let them know that you feel like something's missing. And I, and I, I hate it. It's like the one thing about my job (laughs) that I don't like to have to make that call. But having said that, I've never regretted it. And ultimately, because they're directors I've worked with now for multiple times, they know when I call that they need to pay attention. Can you think of some kind of things, maybe not on this film, that you have had to say, oh my gosh, I think this is missing. What kind of things are those? The one that always comes to mind, actually the first film that Gina and I did together, which was Love and Basketball. The script was amazing. Gina knocked the film out of the park. But one of the scenes when it first came in, and the thing I can't quite remember was whether they had a second night planned anyway, or whether we ended up having to bring, you know, add a second night. I think that they were supposed to be shooting it over two nights, 
But anyway, so there's a scene in the film at the very end where Monica has asked Quincy to play a game for her heart. Um, She's trying to win him back. And the first night they went out and they shot the game. And they shot uh, the game in a very kind of technical way where uh, it was supposed to be a five-point game. And so when the daily started first coming in, what I was seeing is I was seeing kind of the physics of the game itself. But what I was looking for to some degree was the intimacy of the game and what would create that urgency of I've got to win this. I've got to somehow connect with him in a way that maybe he'll think twice about letting me go. When the scene came in and I just started to go through the dailies, I felt still a little bit emotionally distanced. I certainly had um, when Monica was supposed to shoot or miss and when Quincy was supposed to shoot or miss. And But I didn't, I, I just, the desperation I missed a little bit. So I talked to Gina about it and I put the scene together and I talked to her about the things that I felt we still needed to maybe kind of just stick the landing in those moments. She heard me. Those were things like when you go back and watch the scene, when they start struggling, when she starts struggling to get the ball from him and their hands are kind of, he's kind of pushing her away and she's trying to, to kind of make a connection with him. And in so, a couple of the looks um, that they had to, with one another. And so we did a little bit of a... Um, storyboarding of looking at the scene that we had and looking at those moments that we could capture that would just cure it a little bit better. And so the second night they went out, I actually went out that night and just kind of stood quietly behind and just watched and just um, had a few kind of exchanges with her in terms of just discussing what they were shooting. And we got what we needed. And I think part of it too is that inherently Gina is not a director she doesn't even want to see cut footage while she's shooting. I mean, um, traditionally, she doesn't necessarily like to do it. What she'll say is, is she has something that's in her head a certain way. And so when she sees cut, the cut footage, especially during the production process, it isn't necessarily helpful to her to see something like that, unless I make her watch it because either I feel like she needs it basically to inform her of something that I feel that she needs to be aware of, right? And, and especially with a scene that's that critical to the movie where you say, hey, look, the, the movie kind of is going to rise and fall on on the emotion of this scene. But that's a harder conversation to have with a director than I need a close up. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I yeah, I had I had a similar scene that I had to cut that I saw the dailies for. And I kept feeling like the character is supposed to be listening to something that's affecting her. And there was it was just so much wide shot and mediums. And I really wanted that sense that she's listening to something affecting her. And I didn't feel like I had it. And um, that was one of those, one of those cases where I knew that I was missing something. Yeah. I mean, it's hard too, because if you haven't worked with a director before, and this was our first time together, there's that added kind of anxiety of, okay, I'm about to go talk to somebody about this. But at the end of the day, you're both advocating for the film. You've got to put your ego aside. You've got to put all that aside. Because at the end of the day, it's not going to, as we know, miraculously appear. And sometimes it's even something as subtle as a performance. If you start seeing a performance skewing a certain way, is being able to kind of be able to even communicate that to a director. And that can be daunting too, because 
Um, obviously, they're very, very invested in perhaps an actor and their performance. And at the same time, if you're starting to see an actor do something, maybe it's a particular physical thing or a way that they're carrying themselves that starts to feel maybe a little bit too exaggerated. I mean, because you, you're kind of doing the, the, the first look at looking at the film as a big picture, as they're out there shooting scenes out of order and, and having to kind of track what a character's doing. And so I think those type of conversations, you just have to kind of really pay attention to what's going on so that if you see something that you feel maybe will become problematic, that we're not going to be able to course correct as easily. And that's why in many ways you have to look at everything. You have to look at all the takes because you have to see even what an actor is doing. Is there something that that's happening that's maybe a little bit too repetitive or that you just have to kind of just make them aware of? Those are difficult discussions to have. Uh, I, I, so many people have talked about the fact that the editing room has to be a safe place for the director. And my interview with Erve Schneid that I just did, he called directors fragile creatures, <laughs> which they may not like, but in many ways, it's a compliment. What do you do on a political basis, on a human social interaction basis, to know that you're seeing something that's very important to this director that's very difficult maybe for them to discuss and you have to have these hard conversations with them? What I really try to do is before I make that call or have that conversation is to really, as an editor, make sure that I'm looking at all the options, that I'm not jumping the gun, that I'm not creating a fire where there isn't one, right? Mm -hmm. um, because there's nothing, I mean, I hate drama. I, I, I'm the most anti-drama editors you probably accept within the performances. <laughs> um, so I, I make sure that I understand what the intention is or what I think the intention is. And then I kind of approach it from that perspective, where I will first say, I've been watching dailies or I've been looking at a certain performance and I just want to check with you because this is what I'm seeing. And if that's what you're looking for, maybe there's something I'm not aware of because, look, I have the script and I have whatever discussions we've had prior to you shooting the film. And those things always change as we evolve, as, as you go into production. So I try to approach it from the same kind of that I may be wrong or I, I, I may be seeing something that I'm just not privy to the what the intention is. And so then within that, um, we start having the conversation. You know, if they feel they're good, then I feel like, okay, then we're good. If they feel that it's something that maybe they'll have in the back of their head the next time they kind of go through and, you know, continue to shoot. I was on a particular film where I wasn't on location with the director and dailies started coming in. And there was something I was noticing in one of the performances because this, this character is supposed to be somebody who's on the spectrum. And so I just started to see this kind of thing that was happening, this physicality. I was a little concerned that maybe it would become too caricaturish. But at the same time, I felt like I needed to say something. If I see a take where I don't have it, then I think, okay, well, maybe I don't, maybe I don't need to worry. I was supposed to be going to visit location for about a week anyway. So prior to heading out there, I did put in a call to the director and I said, look, I, there's a couple of things I want to show you. I have a, a couple of concerns that I want you to take a look at. And so when I went up, I had cut together some scenes so that she could kind of see what I was concerned about. And um, it was something that she did decide to, to address. I think one of the things that helps 
in those instances is the relationship that you've built prior, that the director knows that you have their best interest in heart, that they know that you just care about the story and making it better. You're not trying to call out a mistake or anything like that. As long as they feel that you're an advocate for them, then Mm -hmm. those conversations Mm -hmm. are going to go better, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that it is a matter of a trust that's built prior. But even so, I mean, even if it's a director that you've never worked with before, you have to be able to speak your truth and know that hopefully it's received well and in the spirit of understanding that you are the film's ultimate advocate. If it's not, then, you know, it's ultimately they're going to have to face what you're saying or find the solution, if there's a solution to be found, at some point. Tell me a little bit about kind of the process from having a first assembly. Did you do that assembly exactly to script? Wow, that's a great question. I would say no. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, for the most, I would, I would say for the most part, yes, yes. I mean, uh, most of it was as scripted. Because ultimately, you know that the director has that particular vision in mind. Yet there were certain things within the film itself that I always feel like with the first assembly, it gives me that opportunity to say, you know what, I know what you wanted. You know what you wanted. But while I was playing around here in the cutting room, I found this really cool other way that we might want to look at it. And sometimes those cool things I may not put in the first cut and I'll have it in a bin separately. I'm sure you have other editors say say the same thing. But then I also kind of use the first assembly as a way to say, well, what if this? I always have to be kind of judicious as to making sure that it's not something that's going to completely take them out of the first viewing. The director has enough, as does the editor, has enough anxiety going in anyway, finally watching their first cut. And I find that every director, I say every director is their own force of nature and they all have different ways in which they process that first experience. Some do it better than others. Some it's, it's, it's just fraught with all kinds of just you know, stress and everything. So I find that with the first assembly, depending on if I know the director and, and know that they're going to be cool with me showing them something different, um, I may move a scene around or like in the case of the old guard, I think that one of the things really was that kind of we went through a number of different scenarios was Princess Nile and, and Andy are outside the church talking and there is basically the abduction of Joe and Nikki and, you know, how we were going to introduce basically the team coming in to take them, you know, and whether it was going to be a sense of discovery, whether we were going to introduce them to the audience first, how were we going to build that sense of impending dread? So that was something that I think I played around with a little bit before she came in, as well as the order in which I played around a little bit with the dreams themselves and with respect to the order in which and the language in which the old guard dreamt of Nile and Nile dreamt of the old guard. So there was a little bit of work there. And then with Sheena specifically, it's always kind of a discussion of music. Sometimes when I am putting together a first cut, I'll talk to the director and say, how do you feel about hearing music on on your first cut? Because some people don't want to hear it. And Gina is somebody who actually really likes to hear music. Um, She's a very musical-driven type of director. So with respect to that, my first assembly is something that allows her to kind of explore some ideas of things that maybe I I want her to hear. Um, But as far as just structurally, 
it was pretty true to form. There was a little bit more uh, material with respect to the past of who the old guard was, just because it was material that was shot and that was stuff that Gina needed to see. We kind of talked ahead of time in terms of how much she'd want to use, but I felt that she needed to see everything built in such a way that she could kind of evaluate. And then those things, of course, shifted as we started to get into the, uh, the director's cut process. That church scene that you're talking about brings up an interesting idea. I didn't really think too much about it when I watched the movie itself, which is to your credit, of course, because it was unnoticeable. But it makes me think that when you have these intercut things, like a bunch of people who are waiting to be attacked, or they don't know that they're waiting to be attacked, but that's what they're doing. And then an impending attack, when do you decide this is when we're going to introduce the fact that they're in danger? Like a lot of people might just think, oh, it's scripted. Well, (laughs) it's scripted that they show up at some point, but where do they show up? When? Exactly. Especially in that situation, because, you know, you had this world where they were in this environment where they're literally on a flight pattern. So there's these planes that are constantly going by, and this is part of what what their safe house is, is that they have, um, and this is a real town, by the way, in France. Goussainville is not something that we made up. I mean, this was a town, small, sleepy town in, in France that when they built Charles de Gaulle, it turned into this ghost town because it was literally on the flight pattern of the airport. And so part of it was being able to recognize that Again, you have these warriors in this safe house. And meanwhile, there's a military maneuver that is is happening right outside of their door. And how do we create something where people are going to go with us and believe that these warriors who've been together for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years would not be aware of, you know, what's going on and whether or not to show the military unit approaching, whether to allow Niall and Andy to have this conversation and then suddenly they hear an explosion or do you suggest that they're coming in? So it was really one of those things where we tried a lot of different versions, tried to go with what do we feel would realistically kind of create enough tension and urgency to what was about to go down without it feeling um, like, what are we waiting for? And in, in fact, we had a little bit of fun with it later in the film when we actually have someone say, what the hell are are they waiting for? Um, But it was something that we just kind of played around with and just tried different versions of showing them first, not showing them first, actually showing what happens to Joe and Nikki and actually showing. That was shot. Yeah, it was shot. It was shot where you saw them, you know, going into the, you know, actually going in and carrying them out. And and so there was there was a lot to play with there. And ultimately, we felt that in terms of staying with Andy, staying with Niall, having them take us through the aftermath of seeing what happens to Booker, because ultimately you find out something about Booker that you're not quite expecting. And so there was also trying to make sure that we were creating a path where people wouldn't go back and go, wait a second, how did that happen? And so what we ended up with was a little bit of both, where we used the actual part of the abduction as his memory to communicate to them through his perspective or through the perspective he wanted them to know, um, which later you find out is actually something a little bit different. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Terry Lynn Shropshire. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. 
No matter your filmmaking needs, Film Tools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. This week, Film Tools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on filmtools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on filmtools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to filmtools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my interview with Terry Lynn Shropshire. Jumping backwards a little bit, when you're going to show a director that editor's cut and you have changed something from the script, do you preface it in any way? Hey, there's a couple of things I changed or this one scene I flipped. I try to say as little as possible um, as far as disclaimers, um, other than I may say something like I did uh, try some music things through the course of it, uh, just dwelling in the possibility or dwelling in the what if. That's my mantra, dwell in the what if. Yeah, there are times when I will say something like, you may see a couple things in a different order than you may remember, but I thought this was a, an opportunity for you just to kind of look at that. So, but I, I really try not to get too specific and just let them kind of take it in and hopefully, again, it, it won't throw them. Because I, I really don't want to have those, hey, wait a minute, where's that scene moment? And then it has to take them a minute to get back in. You really don't want to do that. I try to mention things that I feel like might throw them if they're not aware that I've done something there. Longtime Art of the Cut listeners might know my example that I've probably given several times out of these interviews that that was one of my first big mistakes with a director was saying, oh, we don't need these first three lines in the scene. And I would just cut them out. And man, it just got a bad, bad reaction. And there's kind of no recovering from that in the moment. Uh, and you have to go, well, I can put them back in. Don't worry. And <laughs> yeah, you got to yeah, it's be tricky. careful. It's a great process to go through, right? Even if it's so, and that's part of you saying, keep your ego out of it. I could say that I let my ego lead me to cut those scenes, those lines out, because I thought in my head that they needed to go. But I needed to keep my ego out, let the director see what they shot, so that the director could see that and come to their own process of wanting to get rid of those lines. Exactly. Um, it's all about timing. Generally, you are so ahead of them by the time they come in, in terms of you having lived with the material and um, built the material and, and you know the things that, in at least your mind, you want to really talk about or remove or adjust or, and uh, you have to be able to be patient and let them have the process that you had. You know, they have to kind of catch up to you a little bit mm -hmm. and you have to give them that, that time uh, and sometimes if you try to suggest something too early, um, when they're not ready to hear that yet, it's not helpful to the film. And so I really do keep those types of thoughts and scenes. And again, sometimes I've done it. Um, I've tried it. I may not even find the exact solution, but I know that there's a seed there that I want to explore and hopefully explore with them. But it's all about timing and when you bring those forth those ideas. Talk to me a little bit about the action scenes. What's your process with an action scene? Do you create selects reels? What do you do? Basically, I do my usual dailies process. And then, well, it depends on what the scene is. Sometimes I will use my multicam 
And I will literally start building a sequence where I'm playing all, you know, however many cameras I'm choosing to look at at a given time. And I'll start literally just editing kind of through multicam, like looking at that image there or that image there or that. And I'll start to create a select reel based on of different angles based on multicam as kind of an additional, just as a, a, a simple foundation. And I may go through that through a series of sequences within the action itself where I've picked angles that, that have intrigued me or that, that look cool. The other thing that I often have to do is when, especially if it's a scene like a fight scene or something where they're doing a, a multiple movement or a piece of choreography, keeping the camera going where they're like, okay, go back to one, reset. And they do this thing over and over again. I'm then now taking that sequence and starting to pull the ones that I feel physically are working for me. But I also, in those cases, especially when it, it has to do with the stunt coordinator or it has to do with you know a second unit situation, I will look at the notes. I'll look at the script supervisor's comments, whether it's from the director or the second unit director. So I'm kind of aware of what, for instance, Danny Hernandez, who is a stunt um, coordinator on the film, if he had certain movements or a certain type of, if it was some a martial arts move or something where he was commenting, you know, I thought four and six were a really great and accurate movement on this particular choreography. Obviously kept those as selects and was always kind of referring back. But then once you build the scene, those things often change, you know, in terms of that action reaction of something. I basically kind of, yeah, I build my selects of movement and choreography. If it's a particular long scene where they're, they've, broken it down into this was, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three. Sometimes I usually like to try to get the entire scene down, even in its, if it's most fundamental place. I like to be able to just kind of build um, the scene. I mean, if you look at my timeline, it's seemingly pretty messy, but I build layers of the same action on top of each other so that I can sometimes just go through and, and look at the different movements back to back. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, depending on what the thing is. But uh, there are times when you look at my timeline and I've got like four or five, six video layers of the same thing. I'm old school in the sense that I call them work bins. So I'll have a work bin for a particular action sequence. And that will include my my early cuts. It'll include things that I've just built. It's just maybe just a movement that I I really like and I want to keep it. And so I start very kind of broad And then I just start to kind of narrow it down. And I try not to get myself too caught up in the minutia, especially during production, because I just need to know that I have everything I need. Because even within a particular sequence, if I know that second unit is following behind first unit to grab things that Gina's requested that they didn't get and that that she knew that second unit could grab for her, that was my opportunity to go, and can you get this? And, and uh, what about this? And so generally, I don't like to use the word rough. I know everybody talks about rough, but I always joke. I say editors don't do anything rough. So yeah, so that's kind of how I do it. We always talk about action as this kind of big daunting thing to overcome. Whereas I, I find it, it's, it's a different set of tools. And of course it's challenging, but I found myself infinitely more challenged sometimes by those quiet moments and, and the, the, the scenes that people would not necessarily consider difficult. But it was a fun one with the action scenes because they also had to speak to tone 
on this movie because there was so many moments where you had characters talking about the existential part of immortality or being mortal or killing or that when you got into the fight scenes, you wanted them to have a certain degree of energy, but also to remind us that we were in this graphic novel and to allow yourself to have fun with it and let it be badass. And so it was very important, depending on what action scene it was, that it also, that we were also carrying a certain degree of, I, can't, I keep using the word tone, but a good example is, is the one where, you know, Andy has to go and fight uh, in the church and she leaves Booker and she leaves Nile to go take these guys out because she knows that she's got to get Nikki and Joe back. So even the choice in music, the choice of allowing that scene to be kind of this dark, edgy, but ultimately, I hate to use the word fun, but this this thing where you kind of see who Andy really is in her efficiency of movement. Yes, we could have put on a standard action score cue to put her through that. But um, when I first started putting together the scene, to me, it was just so, it had such an arc to it that I just love the idea of it being operatic in a sense, because that's how it felt to me, the way that it had been choreographed and the way that she was moving. It was like watching her do this very, very efficiently laser-focused dance. And I didn't want it to take itself too seriously. And so ultimately, when I presented that to Gina, it wasn't the the song cue that we currently have in, which is called This is the World We Made, which I love the vibe of what that means. It's it's this woman who's ultimately, she doesn't really like to kill, but she's very good at it if she needs to. She's very efficient with it. And um, she's fighting a world that has been made around her. And so that wasn't the first song that we put in, that I put in for my first assembly, but um, mine was kind of equally operatic in that sense of the scene and allowing the tone to have a little bit of a dark, I don't know, humor to it to some degree um, with respect what was going on. While we're talking about music and that scene, the scene that leads up to that, we're talking about when do you show that there's an approaching force. Talk to me about choosing the music so that the music is not either giving you that kind of horror movie vibe like, uh uh-oh, here come the bad guys, right? You don't want that to happen, probably. What what did you do? I'm really someone who likes discovery, and that includes how you approach music in movies. It's very funny because there are times when I'll work with composers, and we have amazing composers with Dustin O'Halloran and Volker Bertelman on this, this film. But I often find sometimes that composers always like to jump the gun a little bit, where they kind of like to come in a little earlier than where I'm hearing the music. And so often when, and it's not just in this situation, but it's happened before, where you're finally having a composer look at the film or you're spotting the film and the first music starts to come in and you're watching the scene and suddenly you start to hear music. And I find myself like, wait, wait a second. You're not allowing the audience to have that moment of discovery a little bit. You're trying to manipulate them a little too early, or I don't even like to use manipulate because I hate when I'm in a movie and the music is trying to tell me how to feel. And so I think that part of that is, is really choosing that moment for me where the audience can be a little bit ahead of you. Um, I think audiences like to be a little bit ahead. They are always kind of searching for that. And I don't like leading the audience 
through a movie, or at least I'm being aware of it. And so I think for musically, it really is about finding that space between not coming in too soon, where you're jumping it, and then not coming in like right at that moment where it feels like you're pushing my button. There's this kind of in-between space that I think you you find and hopefully you become aware of the music without becoming aware of the music. And so what I loved about our, our conversations with the composer and our music editor, because often the music comes in and it's not exactly in that space. And that's why having a great music editor, you can kind of play around with what you feel like you're hearing and then they can go back and communicate that to the composers and, and, and they can kind of have that discussion. We were very, very lucky on this film to get the composers in earlier than we ever have on any film. And, and I think that that was to Gino's credit that, you know, those discussions were had very early and Netflix was very open to, you know, having us have them involved very early. So, yeah, it's kind of like that moment where, like, when the explosion happens and, you know, you just have even that little moment of sometimes that moment of silence before you start to, to let something come in. With the song actually in the church, it, it, it was one of those things where it just fits so beautifully. We put that song on and it just, I mean, I don't remember making any adjustments. It felt like the composer and I, I don't know, had some kind of weird Vulcan mind meld or something because we got the song on there and it was just, it was just amazing. You mentioned earlier, I hate to jump back this far, but you said dailies, how your assistants prep dailies. Is it just laying stuff out in a bin or do they do a chem roll for you? What, how do they actually prep the dailies for you? If it's just kind of a typical day, they will usually just put them all together in a chem roll type of situation where I can just press play and not have to load it. I, I like being able to sit and just watch it as one long piece. If it's something that involves multiple cameras, like we had a whole situation in the film where we had some of the assassins or the shooters that come through, they were wearing these head cams. And so we had so much head cam footage come in. Oh my gosh. And so in that case, I said, look, Corinne, I need your help here because it's just way too much stuff to look through. So she built me these kind of sequences of that stuff that went from certain pieces to certain sections for whatever that was. So I could I could literally watch them as they were watching them um, on the film itself. Even with it, when it came to comps, I really kind of threw that stuff to Corinne and talked to her about what I wanted to see. Like when we were talking about even comping the monitors. It's like, okay, you know, this is what I want to see on these different comps. Can you build me a select of that? But generally, yeah, with dailies, I just love to play it through and not have to stop and just kind of be able to watch everything. And it's hard because you have to kind of decide if you're not doing multi-camera and watching in a multi-camera, you know, am I watching all of A camera first? Am I watching all of B camera first? You know, what is that? And that's why in some ways I prefer watching dailies in multi-camera. I prefer watching actually ABC camera at the same time, just because I know that I've seen everything, especially if I'm having to try to move quickly and want to see everything. And then I'll go back and watch specifically the close-ups again, or you know, a particular camera again that I know that I may be using. A lot of times, you know, with, with multiple cameras, if you if they're shooting these wide shots. Right. And you know that you're going to use those very judiciously. It becomes less important to me to focus on that camera because I got a sense of what that camera is. I can always go back and look at that. It's really as we start getting into the detail 
of a performance or detail of a close-up or medium shots or anything like that, then I'll go back and kind of focus on that particular camera. And at a certain point, it's challenging because in wanting to watch everything, but also knowing that, okay, they shot this wide shot so many times, I've got it. You know, I've got what that is. This is one of those movies that I, I love the structure of it. You're jumped in the middle of a situation. You don't even understand it. You don't know who the people are. Nothing is explained to you. Like, we don't start off with a big montage that says, many years ago, there were these immortals, and now here they are. We don't get any of that. You're dropped into the middle of a situation. You learn things as you go. When you're building individual scenes, you build them like you think, oh, I like the dailies and I watch them. Then they go together in context and you watch them as your whole movie. Did you find that you were like, ooh, it would be interesting if this reaction, you know, like if somebody is going to, I don't want to give anything away, but like if you, if something's going to happen, do you want to give a little hint that maybe you didn't give in your first cut that you're like, ooh, I want to see this guy's reaction at this point because maybe later that'll mean something to people. Yeah, it's a little bit of the reverse of that. The, the look is there and you want to highlight that particular look because yes, you're right. Later on, you will understand and you may not remember that look until you see it the second time, right? And it ha will have a different meaning the second time you watch it. And who doesn't love that when you watch movies? I mean, the thing that I feel was the best experience I had very, very early in the old guard was when Gina sent me the script. She said, I want you to read this. She didn't tell me anything about it. She just said, read the script. And I knew nothing about the graphic novel. And I read the script and I got to the scene and it was, and the script was different from what it is now. In fact, some of the beginning was very similar to the graphic novel. Um, and that kind of changed just through the evolution of getting to production. But I remember reading the script and getting to the kill floor. And when these people started coming back to life, I was like, what is this? It was one of those moments where you kind of know that unless somebody is living on a desert island and suddenly a TV is dropped onto the island with um, the old guard playing, they're never going to have that experience the way that I had it. And ultimately, because of marketing, you were going to know that they were going to be immortals. But having said that, there was very deliberate discussion about how we discover who they are. I, I kept saying, as I built this movie, that Niall is us, we are Niall. In other words, Niall being the character that is coming into the world of the old guard, we're going to learn about them the way that she learns about them. And even in the graphic novel, you kind of first meet the old guard, then you meet Niall, and then you see what happens to you. So there was a little bit more of this kind of parallel thing that was happening between um, the old guard and Nile in the graphic novel, that within the course of making the film, it made more sense for you to get to know who the old guard was first. You know, you get a sense of where they are in the world. They've been double-crossed, especially Andy's character. And then Nile comes in. So with respect to building things and creating that sense of discovery, we ultimately decided that, yeah, starting a, the beginning of the film where you're in some kind of period of who they were back in the Crusades or, or back in some time early on with Andy was not going to give you a sense of who this person is as we drop you into their world. And there are moments where you just want to get to know them as people, as a team, as an efficient mercenary team who are really good at what they do. And then through that, you also start to get little hints of 
their humanity or maybe why they are who they are. Um, you know, something as early as the kill floor when they're all literally annihilated and yet they start to regenerate. And then there's a moment where they kind of check in with one another. And there's certain things within two characters checking in within one another that the first time you see it, it may seem like they're just checking, you know, but you, after you see the film and you go back and watch again, you realize that these characters have a certain relationship that you discover as the film goes on. So those kind of hints were always really cool to have, knowing that in some ways the relationship between Andy and Booker is something that becomes very integral as the film goes on and understanding where they are in their lives and why they are who they are and the loss that they had in their lives that is, again, discovered through conversations with Niall. And she really kind of allows us to see the vulnerability and humanity of who these people are. I mean, that was always the intention is to kind of have those things that you can go back and watch the film again and maybe look at differently. When we were working on the film, I always saw Niall is us. We are Niall. Niall is us. Because essentially we are coming into the light world of the old guard the way that she is coming into the world of the old guard. At first, she doesn't really know what's going on. And we learn about them many ways through her and her hearing the stories of who they were. She constantly asks, why? Why us? She talks to Andy about killing. And is this supposed to be me? Am I supposed to be this killer? Um, and she ultimately is the first person who really does see the why. And that's what makes her decide that this is a path she's going to take because she is the reluctant new immortal who doesn't really understand why she's been put in this position and has and constantly doesn't accept it, which is something that was really important for Gina. Gina wasn't looking to have a character that would just automatically accept her fate, that she was a strong woman in her own right as a Marine who is thrust into this world that she doesn't understand. And she wasn't going to just easily accept what was happening to her because she was her own warrior. What concrete examples can you give or, or what can you say about how that vision, Nile is us and we are Nile, how does that inform your editing? Well, a lot of it has to do with, in some ways, making sure that within the point of view, and sometimes it's not, it's used loosely, but in terms of how you are sharing information or giving and how who's receiving the information on any given scene. If you look at something like the dinner table scene, for instance, and there's a lot of kind of back and forth where that scene starts very quietly. Niall is looking at the old guard. The old guard is kind of sizing her up. Um, she's the first person to make us, you know, ask a question. So are you good guys or bad guys, right? Um, and then the, the response is it depends on the century. And so then you start to then allow her to hear who they feel they are as the old guard. Meanwhile, you have her taking that information in and you have Andy watching her. And Andy doesn't initially say much at the beginning of the conversation. And then she kind of then comes to the table, sits down, and they then start having more of a discussion. And you start to learn more about Andy in some ways in terms of her humanity prior to, I mean, I think, I think it's the first time when she's really talking um, about the past in such a way that, that feels a little more vulnerable. She's talked about the past as being angry and frustrated 
And she certainly wasn't looking forward to Niall's, you know, entry, but she, she knew it was something she had to do. But um, it, it's the first time when you really start to kind of get a sense of who they are. And you're, you're learning that through her and, and how she is taking in that information and how we're seeing how she reacts to what they're telling her. So in scenes that you had her in, mm-hmm. that was consciously in your brain that you're like, this is the POV that I'm looking for. Well, that this is the POV, but that also this was something that for Niall, when she finally hears the stories of their history, it freaks her out and it makes her angry and she leaves. I mean, it's just this idea of making sure that in some ways that this was just not something that was just romanticize or, or that, that being immortal, you can consider it a superpower, a gift, but there's a curse to it. There, there's something about it when she says, I don't want any of this, that you understand that by the time she's saying that to Andy, that you understand as an audience why she doesn't want any of it, why she can't accept that um, this is part of what her life is. She's not ready to let go of the people that she loves or or any of it. it. It seems very dark and scary to her. And I think that part of being able to allow your audience to see both sides or all sides of who the old guard is, is through how not, Niall takes that information in more than anybody, you know, because she's the most human or the, the newest of them as we would be, right? Uh, anything else you want to talk about? I'm always fascinated by what fascinates you. Look, you've seen so many movies and talked with so many editors. I I was listening to your podcast with Simon and it was like an hour and 45 minutes. I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) It's just, um, so I, it's hard for me to just kind of talk about the film, but I love when the questions are asked that I can start to think about and, and answer. So You had great answers. I loved a lot of that discussion, especially the last question that we talked about is so about editing, right? That need, how do you make the audience care? How does this not just be an action film with a bunch of kicks and punches and gunfire, and then you're done with it and you don't care? And all those things, that's what makes it interesting and enjoyable. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing that's been great about the film because look, you know, Gina was very deliberate in the type of film she wanted to make. And when Skydance, um, when she went into Skydance uh, to even get this film initially, they said, we, we're bringing you in because we love what you've done with your movies as far as your characters and love and basketball and beyond the lights. And they wanted her to be able to bring her sensibility to this genre. And Gina's intention was always to make a action drama film. And I think people that have embraced the film have really gotten it and what her intention was and have really appreciated that she did something different. Yeah, that we took the time to allow uh, our characters to express and and have silent moments and have contemplative moments. Um, one of the ones that we, that we talk about is the one on the elevator with Niall and how letting her go up all 15 floors Whereas in any other action film, they, she would have gone in, you would have seen um, Cockley say, good luck, Miss Freeman, and then she would have come out of the elevator. Obviously, I love action movies. Um, it was nice to be in a position where we could do something different. And the people that have loved it have loved it for what it's, why it's different. I think there's still people that went in thinking they were just going to get a straight 
kind of atomic blonde, John Wick type of balls out type of, of action film, but that was never our intention. And we wanted to do something different. And I'm really happy with the way the film turned out. It's 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 those kind of moments that I actually love when I see a, a film. I always say I love the Peter Parker and, and the Bruce Wayne and, and the, the Clark Kent and the moments where you get to see the people who become these incredible um, action heroes. But there's something that that alter ego of theirs that are the moments that I love. And I feel that the old guard is a great introduction to the characters so that wherever they go, um, and if there's a sequel, that at least we've planted you into who they are, who their humanity is. And then now they can go anywhere and people will love them, hopefully, because we gave you that opportunity to get to know them a little differently. Yeah. And then one of the ways that I think of when you mentioned getting to know them a little differently is Andy's character. I loved at the beginning that that scene where she eats the, what, what is it? Baklava. Baklava. Yeah. And she's describing all the ingredients perfectly. And it's just one of the, before you see her kick butt, right? Like there's no action up to that point, correct? No, no, no. Right. Yeah. So you haven't seen anything of this woman. You can kind of tell she's a badass, but the first thing you basically see her do is eat some baklava and tell you what the ingredients are. You're like, is this an episode of, uh, you know, <laughs> good eats? What <laughs> yeah, is, yeah. Uh, you know, but it's not, it's a wonderful way to, to meet her character and to care about her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, she, she appreciates the good things in life down to the small things in life. Yeah. And then she's been around long enough and had enough baklava to know where they come from. I mean, that's, that's part of it too. <laughs> and that's so, so great about the old guard is, is that there's a conceit, there is a conceit to immortality, um, and yet at the same time, they do have mortality. So there's that weird kind of dynamic between, no, they can't die, but yeah, they kind of sort of can. They just don't know. They could die from a paper cut, just like we don't know what our time is. And it's funny because I feel like now there's a certain conceit that some of us are, are living with respect to COVID where, yeah, I, I, there's this disease out there and yeah, I can get it, but I'm not going to wear a mask because I, I really feel like I, and, and there's so much similarity to this, but yet, you know, you say that and, and this, this little virus can take you down, right? And so in some ways within our own self-immortality or perception thereof, we're not necessarily, I don't want to get into the political comments of this, but um, um, the old guard is very similar. I love the fact that they can move through their lives in a certain level of conceit, but yet still be incredibly vulnerable and be human. I love that about this movie. Thank you for um, editing it and thank you for talking with us. Well, um, thank you for inviting me to your party. Um, I, I really feel when you asked me to to do this with you, I thought, oh my God, I made it to Steve's <laughs> podcast. <laughs> That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 250 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Terry Lynn Shropshire, ACE. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend. 
Who are you? You can call me Andy. I lead a group of soldiers. Fighters, like you. With an extremely rare skill set. What do you mean? Mother? Let's just say we're very hard to kill. You've got questions, kid. You want answers? I have the new one. And? I think she has potential. <laughs> See, you're already healing faster. You're gonna do great. So you good guys or bad guys? Depends on the century. So we really never die. Just because we keep living doesn't mean we stop hurting. <laughs> Throughout history, we've protected this world, fighting in the shadows. It's nearly impossible to disappear in the world we live in today. She'll like me to take one for you. Oh, thank you so much. There you go. Thank you. These are extraordinary individuals. They are extremely resistant to capture. They're going to lock us up and weaponize us. But they've never faced an army like ours. An army of five. Shit, let's start a band. If we can unlock their genetic code, the entire world will be begging us for the key. You shouldn't have done that. We don't have all the answers. But we do have purpose. I strongly recommend that we leave right now. Let's move! Wait for the signal. How the hell can you even tell? Oh. I'm gonna keep popping on all that.